Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray of iNews.co.uk and the iNewspaper. I'm, as always, joined by Calvin Betton. Calvin, how are you? Very well, very well, James. You used a phrase before you came on air, steady away. Is that Yorkshire for well? Um, I don't know if it's Yorkshire. I think it's got a bit of Australian in there, actually. Not right, sure. Okay. Well, let, let us know. Um, do let us know what, what that actually means, because uh, I do need some translation help sometimes. But I need no help um, by our third wheel this evening, uh, which is Anna Smith, former player, now coach, commentator, broadcaster. Um, Anna, we haven't scared you off after last week then. <laughs> no, especially with introductions like that, I might come back more often. <laughs> Great to have you both as always. Uh, you can follow us all on Twitter, by the way. Um, I'm at James Gray Sport. Calvin is at Cal Beton and Anna is Anna underscore Smith 1488. I have to ask Anna, is there a significance to 1488? Do you know what the amount of times I've actually been asked this question? Um, it's actually just because my name's really generic and uh, there's so many Anna Smiths in the world. So uh, 14 is the date of my birth and 88 is my year. Right. OK, very good. That's so a really boring answer. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. It's right. I'll just cut it. Um, <laughs> no, my, my, my girlfriend has the same problem because she's Hannah Smith. Um, so her solution is to spell Hannah a really weird way. Um, which is with one N and no H's at the end, which is very weird. Anyway, that's it. probably not that interesting. I'm going to change it now. I'm going to do something <laughs> really wacky. <laughs> um, yeah, do give us a follow out at Love Tennis Pod for the whole podcast as well. We've got loads to talk about today. Uh, we'll discuss Cam Norrie's run to the final in Mexico, uh, another title for Rafa Nadal, who beats him there, Emma Raducanu's latest brush with injury, Jack Draper's dream start to the year, uh, and... Alexander Zverev's quite frankly disgraceful behaviour, uh, but there really is only one place to start, uh, and it's Ukraine, as it has been for almost everyone over the last week. Uh, fighting continues, Russian forces continue to invade the country in, in what's been described as one of the kind of biggest military moves of the certainly the 21st century and beyond. Uh, thousands of people have died on both sides, um, allegations of war crimes and all sorts of things that you will have read about elsewhere, and, and we're not here to talk about that necessarily. Um, tennis has kind of been calibrating its response or trying to work out what to do and how to do it. And it, it's, you know, it's caused as much debate almost as, as everything else has uh, to kind of catch you up on a couple of things that have gone on this week. Um, Sergei Stokowski, who's someone I've not had a lot of good things to say about uh, in the past. He has joined the Ukrainian military 
despite having almost no uh, military background, which is something you've seen other sports people do. The Klitschko's are out fighting. Um, Lomachenko is out there too. Uh, we also saw Dana Yastremska and her sister. They, they fled to France. Uh, quite an emotional post there about leaving their parents behind. A number of Russians have come out against the war. Uh, Daniel Medvedev has been um, pledging for peace. Andrei Rublev writing on a camera, no war, please, a message which uh, was viewed tens of millions of times. No exaggeration there. Um, there's so much there and so much suffering and, and also some good things to come out of it, which there always are. Um, Calvin, do you think that sometimes because of the world we're all involved in, that, I mean, everyone's aware of this, everyone's aware of this issue, but do you sometimes feel that because it's an international sport and you're, you are both involved in an international way, you're more connected to some of these things in some ways? I'd say so, definitely, yeah, because mainly coaches and players, they know people from all different kinds of countries, mm. um, including the Ukraine. I know a few Ukrainian players and coaches. And also, I guess, just the fact that tennis players are getting on and off planes, connecting flights in various different cities. They generally feel that we, well, we generally feel that we have a connection with most places in the world. Mm. Uh, what have you found sort of most illuminating about tennis's response i mean we've seen just in the last couple of hours the atp have cancelled their first tournament there was a challenger in moscow that they've cancelled uh, the wta yet to respond and, and we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, when we get to alina svitolina's um statement i mean we've seen in the last couple of hours i think fifa have banned russia from football do you foresee something similar happening in tennis yeah, I'm kind of surprised. I saw one of the statements today and it hadn't really struck me that tennis hadn't done that yet. Um, I know they've cancelled a couple of tournaments, but I don't think they've made any sort of statement that they won't go and 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 play any tournaments there yet. There are some tournaments coming up later in the year in Russia. It's going to be interesting to see. I don't really know what you can do with the Russian players, especially seeing as they've all come out and said that, and condemned the war um, or the invasion. I don't know, like, can you stop them playing? Does that really serve any purpose? It's like, you know, if you say you're stopping the Russian football team playing, then is the next step stopping individual sports mm. stars playing? But it's, that would seem harsh, wouldn't it, seeing as they're, they're all well against it? It's as is everyone except for one man on the planet. Well, quite. It's in particularly sharp focus, of course, because Daniil Medvedev is the new Russia, it's a new world number one um, today, which is sort of, and he said today that he, he's actually, you know, it, it wasn't the biggest celebration he's ever had because of what has been going on. Um, it, the notable, or at least the, the kind of contrast I've seen is between the WTA, who was so firm and kind of um, outright in their actions regarding Peng Shui and everything that went on with that, and their lack of action thus far. It, I haven't been the only one. Um, Alina Svitolina or Alina Monfils, as she is off the court. Um, she says uh, she posted a statement today. She's been drawn against Anastasia Potapova in Monterey, who, of course, is Russian. And uh, Svitolina posted something saying, I believe the current situation requires a clear position from our organizations, ATP, WTA, and ITF. We, Ukrainian players, request ATP, WTA, and ITF to follow the recommendations of the IOC the International Olympic Committee, to accept Russian or Belarusian nationals only as neutral athletes without displaying any national symbols, colours, flags or anthems. Accordingly, I want to announce that I will not play tomorrow in Monterey nor any other match against Russian or Belarusian tennis players 
until our organizations take this necessary decision. I do not blame any of the Russian athletes. They're not responsible for the invasion of our motherland. I wish to pay tribute to all the players, especially Russians and Belarusians, who bravely stated their position against the war. Their support is essential. Um, Anna, are you surprised that WTA, and I appreciate that statement is only a couple of hours old as we sit here, but are you surprised that WTA haven't got ahead of this and kind of made their position clear from the start? I guess maybe a little bit, especially with how kind of um, vigorous their statement was with Peng Shui, like you said. Um, I did read something as well that said it's, I, don't, I can't remember if it was the same statement or something along those lines about um, they were surprised that um, the WTA hasn't come out in terms of um, kind of condemning everything that's happened and and taking away tournaments or kind of whatever that may be. But I mean, yeah, I guess it is a little bit, especially now we're kind of a few days into it. I thought maybe they would have kind of made their stance quite clear or just even released a statement. Um, so for me, that is a little bit surprising. Yeah, I think it's it's particularly, you know, I was thinking earlier, I was thinking, well, how, you know, how much do we need the Women's Tennis Association to make a statement on war in Ukraine? You know, realistically, it's nothing to do with them and probably their opinion doesn't matter. But actually, given what Russia have done in tennis and actually particularly in women's tennis, there are so many Russian players in the top 100. I'm trying to think exactly how many there are. But, you know, there are probably, I would say, six or seven in the top 100. Um, I'm going to say it is seven. In fact, I've now just found out um, with another three sitting just outside. So that is, you know, 10% of the elite players in the world are Russian, uh, not to mention, of course, the successful Belarusians we've got um, involved. And of course, Belarus have been incredibly complicit in the invasion. So I suppose in that sense, we should have expected something from the WTA. Um, is it possible then, Calvin? I mean, you know, we talked, we didn't think the WTA would do what they did when they said we're pulling out of China because they couldn't afford to. Um, is it possible for the WTA to start a fight with Russia, given how much they are involved? And there are big tournaments in Russia, let's not forget. I'd say it's probably, it wouldn't be as big a thing as pulling out China. I think China, financially, they, they relied so much on that, um, especially the women's tour that they really needed. If they, I think if they could have maintained any, maintained any sort of relationship with China, they would have, but that became impossible. Mm. So if they've done that, then I guess they can do the same with Russia. But again, then do you want to take do you want to take two other places out? That's another thing, isn't it? But yeah, I, I, but they're going to have to listen. They're, they're going to have to. You can't be having tournaments in Russia while they're invading another country. So it, it will happen. I suppose the question, I mean, because it's easy at the moment, right? And I see already that when the ATP cancelled that challenger in Moscow, they said, you know, player safety. And, and that's obvious. It's very easy to say, it's not safe to travel to Russia given what the country are currently doing and, you know, flights being banned from airspace. It's not practical. I suppose that the question will come in a couple of years' time when hopefully this is all over and we're in a kind of recriminations phase. Then the question will come, do we still not go to Russia and does it become a new Cold War? I mean, it's just the logistics of it as well. It's like how, like with the sanctions, how are they going to pay prize money? How, how is that going to work? And, and that kind of thing. How are they going to run a tournament? Like, if the sanctions work as they're intended to work, I don't think they'll be even be feasible that they can have tournaments there. It would be impossible. Yeah. I, and actually, that's I suppose, I mean, how are these Russian players getting paid as it is? Because Russian bank accounts basically aren't allowed to function. I mean, I assume they've all got international bank accounts. Yeah. But, 
you know, uh, if you think of a guy who's 200 in the world, he might or she might not be set up for that kind of thing. You know, they, they're the ones who are probably going to get pinched the most, you would think. And then just flying to tournaments, that kind of thing. Like most, a lot of countries, you can't fly there now. You can't fly from Russia to, yeah. you can't fly from Russia to Great Britain, for example, can you? So, no. um, yeah, I mean, just just things like that. I can't. I, I don't think it's feasible that they can continue. I think they'll have to. Look, I mean, we hope that it'll get resolved quick and then you'd imagine we're at a stage where we can pretty much just go back to as, as it was before. But again, we're going to come, if it goes on for much longer, we're going to get to stage like, do they compete in the Billie Jean King Cup? Do they compete yeah. in the Davis Cup? I, I don't think they're going to be able to, are they? Hmm. Yeah, it brings up a lot of questions that tennis probably isn't a situation to answer. And realistically, the fact that some Russian players can't play in tennis tournaments isn't the biggest tragedy here, clearly. Um, yeah. But it is, you know, this is a tennis podcast, not a war podcast, and it's the best we can possibly do. Um, I also wanted to, because I don't, you know, we, we have over the last couple of years ended up delving into, you know, tennis in Estonia or tennis in Georgia and different scenes. I don't know much about tennis in Ukraine, Anna. I don't know if you have any, uh, have played against Ukrainian players, if you've played tournaments over there, because I can't think that there are many tournaments there. Um, oh, God, you're testing my memory here. Um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I massively put you on the spot there. Yeah, no, you really have. I should have done research before if you'd given me the question. Um, <laughs> no, I remember we, uh, I can't remember the year, probably maybe six years ago, played um, Fed Cup when, as it was then against Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Um, so we played them in, I think it was the last group stage match to get into a playoff against Belarus. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, we, so geopolitically, uh, hell of a draw that. Yeah, I was gonna say if that had been now, then it would have been a whole lot different. Um, but yeah, I mean, we luckily we came through that. So for me, that's kind of um, the experience I've had, and obviously, you know, seeing all the Ukrainian and Russian and Belarusian girls on the tour and things like that. Um, so yeah, I've I've never really experienced playing in Ukraine. I don't think I've ever actually been to the Ukraine. Um, so for me, I, I yeah, I'm not too sure. Um, I've not been myself, but Luke, who I coach, has been a couple of times, I think. Um, he won, I think he won a couple of doubles titles there um, and with a Ukrainian player. And he's played a couple of times with Ukrainian players outside of um, Ukraine as well. So, mm. um, so there is a, I mean, there is a scene. I mean, you know, we know, we know the, the top players that have come out of there and things, but I suppose it's, you know, there is clearly a tennis scene. Um, I, for the record, Anna, uh, to give you full credit, you did play Ukraine. You won 3-0. You and Joss beat uh, Katerina Kozlova and Olga Savchuk in three sets. Do you know what? It wasn't It wasn't Kozlova. We played Svitolina. It's oh, really? Svitolina came in because we... Um, I remember that match because we um, we ended up having to win a set of the doubles to qualify. Right. Um, and Joss and I didn't know that at the time. And then we won the second set, having yeah. so match point. Yeah, and then the team were going bananas, and then we were like so confused. We were like, we just won the set. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't actually remember that. There you go. Oh, that's interesting. The um the records are wrong then because they have Kozlova and, and Savchuk. Yeah, no, they've but... got that completely wrong. Unless I imagine. I don't. I mean, I don't imagine that. that you would you would misremember playing Alina Svitolina. She's yeah. I was going to say quite handy. I played her, so I feel like I I do remember that. But well, that, I tell you what, that's that must be the only day in which Heather Watson, Joss Ray, Joss Ray, and Anna Smith have all beaten Alina Svitolina because Heather beat her in the singles as well. So a remarkable set of results on every level. Um, we'll move on. Uh, we will, of course, talk about this uh, next week and probably for weeks and weeks um, to come, unfortunately. Uh, and I, 
as I always say when we talk about you know serious things beyond tennis here, it always feels a bit kind of hollow to segue from war in Ukraine to Cam Norrie reaching a tour level final. But you know that's the nature, unfortunately, of podcasting. Um, we should give a huge amount of credit to Cam Norrie because he uh, has had a brilliant start to the year. I think he won nine, eight matches in a row, uh, winning a title, getting to the final in Mexico before being beaten by Rafael Nadal, the new world number four, as I called him in my notes. This feels like a similar conversation to the one we had last week, Calvin, but um, it, it bears repeating. And I wonder what you think about coming into this, having beaten Stefano Tsitsipas. I, I know he has been hot and cold in the last eight months, but nevertheless, to beat a guy like him, and I think it's only his uh, Cam's third ever victory over a top 10 player, it, it probably is a pretty big feather in his cap, isn't it? Yeah, it's a massive one. I think that's probably his biggest, his best ever win, I would say. Um, yeah, City Pass can be a bit up and down, but it, whenever you beat him, it's, it's a big win. And yeah, it's just a really, there's not much more to say on Cam, is there? We said it all last week. We're just yeah. going to be repeating ourselves. He's really solid. He works hard. Um, he, he maxes out. He maximises his abilities. Um, but yeah, if he's beating guys like that, then... And he didn't get totally destroyed by Nadal either. It was a competitive match. I mean, uh, looking at that matchup, Anna, N- Norrie and Nadal, given what Nadal can do, given what Norrie can do, I mean, it, it, I don't, I, I mean, I hesitate to say Cam's never going to beat him because I'm setting myself up for defeat there, but it, it feels like the worst possible matchup, doesn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the kind of the best matchup for him because I think, um, Nadal can kind of hit through him, whereas um, against a lot of the other guys, there's not necessarily that ability. And especially with the way he moves, the way he just hangs in to points and, you know, he's not going to give anything away. Mm. And I, I, th- I remember watching the match point against Sitsipas. It was literally just Cam Norrie in one point, just putting the ball in the court in awkward places, just just making balls and then forcing the error from Sitsipas. And against Nadal, you kind of can't can't do that. Mm. Um but again, like Calvin said, we kind of just said everything about um, Cam last week. He, you know, he's he's where he deserves to be. He does, doesn't have those big weapons, but I mean, it's so hard to beat him. You have to work so hard. And I mean, full credit that he's managed to back up again, wins the title, makes final, has a like a really competitive match against Nadal. It's, I mean, the guy's just a machine. <laughs> it must as well, because obviously you're working, you know, back at the NTC and, and you know, at the kind of place where Cam was built, I guess, it must create a buzz when he goes on a run like that and when he's in matches like that. It must it must give people a lot of hope and, and strength. Yeah, it does. And I think, you know, when when any British player has success and um, they kind of come back to, to NTC, I, you know, I can only imagine that it inspires everyone and drives everyone on to, to push even harder and kind of want to replicate their success. I'm sure, you know, the likes of... Dan Evans is looking at him thinking, you know, this is going to drive me on and, and you know, Andy as well and and things like that. So, you know, it's, it can only like success breeds success. Mm. Um, and being around that environment, seeing how hard he works. Um, for me, every time I've seen him, I've just been really, really impressed with kind of his attitude, what he's able to bring to training each day in the gym. You know, but I think the guy's doing great. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And he's one of the fittest around. I mean, I recently stumbled across Cam Norrie's Strava profile, which isn't very full. He doesn't put every run he does on there, which is probably a good thing. I don't know if they've got the service for it. But um, yeah, the times that he was putting up for 5 and 10Ks were 
pretty scary. And I know that during lockdown, he did 10K every day. Um, my goal during lockdown was to run a 10K, which I did. Thank you very much. And it was under an hour, which is very <laughs> slow. Yeah, I know. Um, what, speaking of men who run 10Ks in under an hour, like me and Rafa Nadal, uh, another title, I think, is 91st, I'm right in saying, uh, the man who time forgot. Uh, and he now seems like he's playing a pretty full schedule as well, you know, going out and playing a tournament in Mexico. He's not doing what you might rather ungenerously call the Roger Federer schedule, which is just just play your favourite surface and, and then the odd thing that might get you a payday, Calvin. He, he seems to have real confidence in his body at the moment. I mean, not that he ever hasn't, but he doesn't seem like he's scared of breaking down again. You say that not that he ever didn't, but Federer made a comment a couple of weeks ago that he was talking to him in the middle of December and he was questioning whether he would ever come back because mm. he thought that he might be done. So he was obviously doubting it then. But um... but something's changed, doesn't it? I mean, going going to Australia and doing what he did over seven matches, I suppose that gives you a huge amount of confidence that your body's holding up okay. Yeah, I guess winning a slam would give you a bit of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah. It, look, in these type of tournaments, it's no disrespect, absolutely no disrespect to Cam or anything, but as I've, I say on this pod all the time, there's no one better at just destroying the field than Nadal. Yeah. Like, he just doesn't lose to players who are ranked outside of the top five in the world. Mm. Um, it, it just never happens. He went through a period where he wasn't beating anybody in the top 10 either, but he seems to have got that monkey off his back now. He did away with Medvedev pretty comfortably. That's five sets in a row that he's won off Medvedev now. Yeah, I, I wonder about that that Medvedev matchup because it wasn't just that he beat him. You know, he beat him three and three. He pretty much just brushed him aside. I mean, it's not it's not a. I mean, how does how do you look when you look at that matchup kind of in a vacuum, Calvin? It's not a bad one for Medvedev, is it? Uh, I don't think it's a particularly good one either. I've said before the Aussie Open final. I think he he still. There's still parts of his game that will struggle to beat Nadal in that he can't really doesn't hit loads of clean winners. So you're then hoping that you can out rally one of the two best ralliers of all time. Mm. Um, so I think that's where it's. I think it, at best he's fifty fifty in it, and he's never he's always kind of struggled against Nadal. Yeah. Um, but equally, I didn't expect Nadal to beat him three and three. And he saved 11 of 11 break points in that match as well. I, I don't have the stats to back this up, but I do feel like like what I call third stage Nadal, so post-2016 wrist surgery, I feel like he might be the best player on break, break point around. I mean, I, I'm, I'm willing to hear guys who might be better at it. But I, I again, feel like he... I, I don't have any stats on it, but similar that... Um... I've always thought, even right through stage one, two, and three, I've always thought he was the best love 30 player I've ever seen. The number mm. over the years, the number of times that I've seen him have love 30 on his own serve and win the next four points is staggering. But mm. that would tie into I always I'm always interested in what I call the closing and stealing stats, like how many games you win from being game point down, yeah, serve, serve or return, and how many games you lose from being game point or break point up. Mm. Um, and Nadal's, yeah, like you say, I think Nadal's probably up there in both of them. Um, mm. He rarely loses from when he's ahead. He's a great front runner and he he pulls back all the time. I mean, he just wins a lot of points, which helps, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> that's the other side of it, isn't it? I mean, it's difficult to like with, to know with the stats because Nadal, Federer, 
Murray and Djokovic, they're going to be like pretty high on any stat that you pull out because yeah. they're the best players of the last 15 years. Well, exactly. Um, it's interesting talking about those, you know, different situations, Anna. You've obviously um, been a player for the last 15 years and you're now working in coaching as well. Have you seen a change in the way maybe you've been coached or have been coached to coach in terms of approaching those situations? Or, or is that something that actually at elite level you've always talked about? You've always talked about love 30 situations and, and situations like that? Uh, I mean, you always have an idea of like what what kind of a, a big um, points in games, kind of momentum. Um, obviously, you, you kind of talk about the first couple of points in games being really key, especially when it kind of gets to the business end of sets. You always say, do you know what, like a 4-3 or 5-4 um, or whatever. It's like those first two points. If you can get those first two points, you're creating that pressure. Um, but I think some people just, I guess that will, that's what makes them the best. They understand it. They know what they have to bring. Um, you know, Nadal's, you know, he might go 30 love down, but then he's not going to cough up an error. Mm. He, he's going to be solid or he's going to be brave and he's going to be aggressive where, you know, maybe 90% of players will, you know, not do that. Um, so it, it is just that mentality because, uh, that is what separates the, the top from the rest. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's got that unbelievable mentality, which obviously showed in the Australian Open final yeah. compared to obviously him against Medvedev. I don't think there's many players who would have been able to come back from the scoreline and the situation that he was just purely because of, of kind of what he has up here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like Calvin said, I mean, there's not, you look at the stats probably whether he's serving or returning and down in a game point or up in a game, there's not probably many, he's probably the top one of the top two. Um, there's not going to be anyone better than him. Hmm. It, it, it's interesting as well, you know, the the value of experience and, you know, um, what he knows he can do. And I'm, I know the rugby player, Brian Moore a bit, and we sometimes go for beers and we always talk about sporting mentality. And the thing he always says, he the biggest learning in his career was the difference between believing you can do something and knowing you can do something. And it, it, it does seem to be huge. I think it's because the human brain is so evidence-based and I don't want to get too technical into sports psychology now. But basically, you know, trying to delude yourself that you can do it when the voice in the back of your head says, well, we don't know that. We can't possibly know that is very hard. Whereas what, if you can say to yourself, well, you know, I've done this 10 times before, no, uh, then it makes life a hell of a lot easier. Thank you. My Rafa Nadal impression is excellent. You're right. Yeah, it's really good. I've always thought it was. Um, I'm going to put you both on the spot now. You don't have to do your own Rafa Nadal impression. Uh, how many Grand Slams do we think that the new, improved Nadal can win, given that he's got 21 now and appears to be able to play every week and it's not a big deal? Uh, Calvin, you can go first. Uh, I'm probably not the best gauge because I said at the start of the year that Nadal won't win another Grand Slam. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got to make look. You got to make him favourite for the French because, like, Djokovic will probably play about three matches before then, and yeah. we don't know whether he can even play the French. Mm. Um, He's thirty-five. Well, in case that makes a difference to you, sorry. He's thirty-five. In case that makes a difference to you, yes. I think he'll win one more. You think one more? Yeah, that's it. I don't think he's going to win Wimbledon. I don't think he'll win the U.S. Open. And you don't think he's got any next year? No. Wow. Eyebrows from Smith in the corner. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm not very good at predictions, but I mean, for kind of from reading what he said, um, I think it was after the Acapulco victory, he said he just feels like invigorated by by playing again. And he said it's the first time in 18 months or something that he's been able to pay, uh, play without limitations. Mm. So, you know, I think a French Open, he's got to be favourite. Wimbledon, he's won before. Is Djokovic going to kind of be ready? How's it going to work? Is Medvedev great on the grass? You know, who else can really beat him? Uh, I'm going to go... Well, Calvin said one more. I'm going to go... 23 he'll get to 23 i think 23 is a pretty good guess because he he you know if we say he's favorite for the french this year which he is he might be favorite for the french next year um and i think he's proven that he's still a hardcore beast and could very easily win one of the next two us opens or the australian open and then he's at 23 if if he's winning that many then the other guys really need to have a look at themselves. Because, I mean, look, what he's doing is great, but he's not the player he was. Like, yeah. even up until... He was getting pretty duffed in the final of the Aussie Open, and mm-hmm. Nadal in his prime wouldn't have wouldn't have looked like that. And I still think there was an element of Medvedev kind of bottling, a bit, bottling it a bit in the US Open, in the Aussie Open final. Mm-hmm. So the guys like Tsitsipas, Zverev, Medvedev, I think Felix is going to come strong in the next... 12 months as well he's he's already looked pretty good this year hmm. um i think if those guys allow nadal to get another three or another two then they really need to have a look at themselves you know the guy who i think has a massive part to play in this and i and i don't know you know how wh- whether he will is dominic team because dominic team has beaten Rafa Nadal in all arenas, pretty much. I suppose he's not beaten him at, actually at the French Open, but he's got damn close. He's beaten him in hard courts. He's beaten him in big tournaments. He's beaten him in slams. Um, he he's and he's obviously an excellent clay court player. So I think if he comes back into the mix, it changes everything because all of a sudden Nadal probably has to beat Djokovic and team. 50-50, whether he gets them in the draw to win the French Open. And I think that becomes a tougher prospect. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm going to caveat it and say if teams fit by, say, September, everything goes out the window, um, which I think is suitably defending myself in true George Belshaw fashion. What What is, like, team situation is so bizarre, though, that, like, he seems to have been, like, a couple, like two weeks away from coming back for about nine months now. Yeah, I, it's that thing where you don't want to speculate, but you, you saw, you do wonder, don't you? You do just wonder, you know, lots of little injuries. It, it, I don't know. It's, I mean, Anna, you're someone who's, who's had lots of time kind of trying to get back to fitness. Did you find that you'd have one big injury and then lots of little ones that would be constant setbacks or, or and that just happens? I mean, I just went for the big ones every time. I wish, <laughs> I, wish I hadn't. Um, but I guess with its team's wrist, isn't it? Yeah, although the latest one is a kind of in between his knuckles, he said, which I've never really heard of. No, I'm not. I'm not too sure. But it, I guess it's a bit it's a bit different when you've got I mean, I suffered from a lot of like lower limb knee injuries and stuff like that. So I guess that 
slightly different but I guess when you've got a wrist problem in theory you should be able to do a lot of other stuff Mm. so in terms of you know fitness strength things like that he should actually probably be in in quite a good place yeah um so yeah you kind of wonder why but like Calvin said it it does feel as if he's been coming back for so long I've seen so many statements from him being like oh yeah I'm almost ready really looking forward to it and then it's like oh had a bit of a setback and then it's like oh I'm I'm gonna go again and then it's like no not coming (laughs) So, it does make it makes me wonder whether, you know, because it's a wrist injury specifically, it basically means he couldn't hit balls for a long time and can't do a lot of repetition, whether there's just some kind of um bits of endurance that he's kind of lost out on a bit. You know, when if you're a tennis player, you've hit balls, lots of them, every day since you were like nine or younger, and all of a sudden you stop doing that because you physically can't. It there must be a lot of like little muscles in your arm you know like the the ligaments in between your knuckles and things like that which must just just have kind of developed a resistance which so i wonder you know i mean i'm talking i don't know, I, I don't know though that if when did he last play a tournament uh it's a good question didn't he play in cordoba for one match where he was at least supposed to of, yeah i mean he was kind of like playing and losing all the time so i don't know like how long he's actually been out yeah uh, let me do the dates for you. So he last played in Mallorca in June. Uh, and before that, it was Roland Garros last year. Because you're getting then towards... If you get towards the kind of 12-month period, I don't... Off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody that's had 12 months out and come back and won a major. 12 months. It's a very good question. Federer, Federer basically had eight. And then won the 2017 Australian Open, but you know Federer is also quite good. So yeah, and also Federer's injury was, I think the I don't know if wear and tear injury is the way to term it. Federer just slipped and like knackered his knee up in the bath. Like, well, that <laughs> wasn't something that's like. Uh, he, I think he wasn't in the bath. The twins were in the bath, yeah. and then he slipped. So it was like you know that was kind of like one right. I'll just recover from that, and and yeah, and, and also he was Roger Federer. The guy's an alien. Um, <laughs> but, I don't think of any, I can't think of anyone else who's had one of these injuries who's then taken 12 months, been in terrible form for six months, then taken 12 months out and come back and been a major force. I mean, I always talk about Del Potro, but he, even he didn't win, win a major. Correct. Food for thought. Uh, after the break, we're going to talk about Emma Raducanu and her latest brush with injury. We'll also get into Jack Draper, who's been much better behaved than Alexander Zverev. From one injury to another, or from several injuries to another, I should say, Emma Raducanu has got everyone panicking uh, by missing at least one, at least, well, I suppose, two in some ways tournaments. Um, she is a doubt for Indian Wells as well with what we understand to be a leg injury, although I've seen it referred to as a hip injury as well. Um, she was beaten by, am I right in saying it was Daria Gavrilova? I don't think I've made that up. I just haven't got it written down in front of me. Um, a match, yes, uh, she was... Five seven seven six four three down, um, pulled out in the final set in Guadalajara and has now left Mexico uh, because of the injury. It's not been um, a great start to the year overall. Uh, obviously, she uh, lost that match to Rabakina in Sydney. She struggled with that blister in the second round of the Australian Open and now this latest injury. Um, Anna, without wanting to drag up too much of your traumatic injury-laden past... Um, I imagine, you know, the age that Emma is at the moment, there are a lot and, and kind of the stage of her career that she's at, 
there are a lot of physical demands on you as a player, which probably you necessarily haven't been exposed to before. And I imagine this is a step up that, and I'm not saying she's getting injured because they're working it too hard, but this can happen at this stage of your career, can't it? Yeah, she's still so young um, and she's still got so much developing to do. She's already an amazing athlete. I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to, to kind of see her in the gym and her fitness trainer used to be my fitness trainer back like a long, long time ago. Mm. Um, so I know she's working hard, but also you, you've got to take into account kind of like the meteoric rise she's had, the extra pressure that she's had that um, kind of puts a lot of extra pressure on your body without almost even realizing it. Um the, the fact that she's playing a different a completely different level the six months have been a complete whirlwind so mm. um I'm kind of not surprised in a way that she's had all of these injuries and and kind of things like that um but yeah I mean it's not it's not great I think she'd want to get a little bit more consistency and just actually kind of get a feel for everything but it just feels kind of very very disjointed in the last sort of uh, what's it been six months or so since mm. she won the US Open and yeah, I imagine very frustrating. She's only played, well, she hasn't played three matches in a row uh, since Transylvania back in October last year, uh, which when you consider that she obviously famously won, uh, what was it, 10 matches in a row in New York. Yes, quite the change of pace. She, she is currently still registered for Indian Wells, which starts in 10 days time. Um, my understanding is that she is unlikely to play that, but it's very much going to be kind of uh, touch and go and probably a last minute decision as to whether she goes out. I mean, I, I know that she would like to go out. It's obviously a big tournament. Um, it's also run by uh, her management company. So I'm sure it would be um, popular for her to go out. Uh, there's kind of an inevitable social media backlash. Uh, well, there always is. And unfortunately, because Emma's so popular, there are both sides of that debate. Uh, people saying, stop doing so many photo shoots. You know, why are you doing so much of this, so much of that? Um, I happened to have a conversation with someone uh, who, who's very close to the whole kind of um, Radicanu camp, I suppose, and talking a bit about her commercial activities. And it's very interesting to hear them describe her schedule. And actually, I think people assume, because they see her face a lot, that she spends her life doing shoots for Nike or for this or for that and the other. And actually, I mean, she probably, and I know these are the plans and pretty much She'll probably spend on average one day a week doing that kind of thing at most. Um, and actually, they tend to be in blocks where she isn't training. She won't do it during tournaments. She won't do it the week before a tournament. She won't generally do it the week after a tournament. Because I think her management understands, having dealt with some pretty popular tennis players before, you know, she has the same agent that Maria Sharapova had uh, for many years. They know what it is to, A, market a player properly, but also let a player you know, live her life. So I, I just wanted to kind of respond to that, you know, having spoken to people who I don't think would want to say it publicly, but um, a bit of understanding on, on how that's working. Uh, nevertheless, Calvin, it is quite, well, not concerning, but, you know, she's going to have a lot of points to defend in the second half of the year. And, you know, I was always thinking that she could pick up a decent number of points in the first half of the year, and then she would drop a lot and then kind of balance out around 50 in the world and could kind of make progress from there. She it, Now, when Wimbledon and US Open slough off, she's not going to have that to kind of back her up, if that makes sense. And she's basically never played on clay. Yeah. Um, I, I also, going back to that other thing, I, I don't doubt that she's got injured doing a photo shoot anyway, so I don't see how 
doing less um, less photo shoots. What I will say on that, and I know I know people in that world, and I, I'd also spoken to a couple of players. Um, this thing came up in conversation about it, and I think that might actually become a bit of an issue later on because the problem. One of the players I spoke to about this and said that when you do these partnerships with companies they tend to want you to commit to a certain amount of days per year which is usually somewhere between four and eight days per year and she has signed and i'm told this by people who work in sports management that she signed a staggering amount of partnerships yeah so there will be a lot of days building up later in the year that she will need to commit to them and the difficulty for tennis players in that is that tennis players need to be quite fluid. So what you what, those days a year that you'll commit, you put them in the diary weeks and months ahead. And mm. tennis players with their schedules tend to be need to be quite fluid. That if they've had a good week one week, they might want to play a tournament that they didn't have scheduled. Or if they got injured and weren't planning on playing on one week and then they come back from injury, they might want to change their schedule. And schedules change all the time, as, as Anna will know. And I think that that was a bit of a concern for later on that she's going to have a hell of a lot of days to make up later in the year when a schedule might get a bit more more full. But um, yeah, go on, Anna. But that was one thing that I remember her saying. Um, I can't remember if it was towards either after US Open or towards the end of last year, that she was very specific when she said to either her management team or coaches or whatever that she wasn't going to let that stuff get in the way of training and she was always going to prioritize training tournaments or whatever over anything outside to do with media or whatever um but i don't know how that's going to work with she's had the these commitments and signed contracts and things like that it's the problem isn't it because it, it can become outside your control um and you know i mean it you you want it outside your control to a certain extent because you, you don't want to have to think about it um yeah, I, I think my impression is that everyone involved with that, yes, there's been a lot of deals signed, and you're right, Calvin, and, you know, people see her face all the time because she has got a lot of, of deals with various people. Um, although, I'll tell you something quite interesting about, I don't know if you saw the Sports Direct Christmas advert that she was in uh, with a few other people, Jack Grealish, among others. Um, so what's interesting is that basically that was her Nike shoot and they reappropriated the pictures from her Nike shoot and kind of did some clever photoshopping. And obviously, because Sports Director and Nike customer, it was all above board. No one cheated. But it was interesting, you know, that that's basically just imagery that exists in a file somewhere. And Nike just roll it out every now and again. It was very interesting. Yeah, no, yeah, that, that's fair. I mean, going back to the, the tennis side of things again, like what you're saying there, James, is I, I still think there's a bit of a concern because this is... the even before she won the US Open, before she came into Wimbledon, these these injuries have played a part in her career for the last three or four years. She's never really had a run of six months, four months without any, an injury as such and having to pull out of a tournament because of it. Mm, and That's interesting. They don't that's, seem to be letting up now. Anna, you've obviously been been around Emma and I know um, for many years. And, and as Calvin mentioned, you know, she has had problems with injury. I mean, any more than other people? Or would you say, you know, has genuinely been a bit of a problem? I mean, it's tough to say. Um, I mean, I guess it's always a little concerning when she's always had kind of niggly injuries. Um, but yeah, it's weird because you kind of associate her with being 
such a, a good athlete from what we saw obviously at, at US Open but um yeah it's got to be a little bit frustrating that she's not able to stay fit for long enough and mm. I mean the blister is something I guess you can't really account for and things like that but it's like these pulled muscles and things like that which I guess yeah you you kind of want to try and get to the bottom of I was just going to say that it's so difficult with tennis players isn't it with these sort of niggly injuries because you never know because you get these players who who sort of get credit for playing through these injuries and and people go oh, you're always injured as a tennis player you've always got niggles and you play through them and then you know so you think well if you can play through them then they're probably not major injuries and then you get a situation like Dominic Team who seemed to play through an injury for about 9 months <laughs> and now his career might be done yeah um so it's diff- we can't really say whether like whatever whatever Emma Kanu has is like is could she play through it a bit more could she like do a little bit more i mean i i got to be honest i i know i was in the minority in this i thought the blister thing was a bit soft um players play with blisters regularly um but i'm sure that she is injured now mm. um let's move on uh because hopefully we'll see or hear more from emradicano between now and next week and we'll have a bit of a clearer picture uh, Jack Draper is fully fit, uh, which is delightful to say, because I know he's someone who went through quite a bit of injury strife last year. He, and he is fully fit in the best way because he's winning tournaments. Uh, he's played five challenges this year. He's won three of them, which is a good hit rate by anyone's uh, measure. All of them in Italy, I think I'm right in saying. Forley five, he won this week. Uh, he beat uh, Alexander Richard, 366376 in the final uh, to seal his third title of the year. Calvin, you know, I, I know you've picked Jack as your your young player of the year already and um, someone who's going to make big waves in, in the rankings. Uh, is it a surprise to see him burst onto the challenger scene like this? No, not at all. I think it's like if he hadn't been injured and we hadn't have had the COVID situation, it would have happened 12 to 18 months ago, I mm. think. Um I'd even say he's he's playing above that level now. Well, look, if you're winning three, if you're winning three challenges, uh, then you're playing above the level. That, mm. That's not your level anymore. Um, um, he was also five love down in that final set tiebreak as well, mm. um, and came back to win it. But yeah, he's so relentless. This is the thing with Jack. He he's, he's just so relentless all the time. And he did this in futures when he first broke onto the scene when he was still in juniors. I think he won like four futures in a row in Britain. And he will go on these these runs of 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 matches all the time, and I, I, he's going to be in the top one hundred by the end of the year, without mm. a doubt. Um, Anna, you will obviously know Jack well as well, and um, be be pleased to see him going the way he is. But no surprise to you either. No, not in the slightest. Um, I think that the question mark was always just when is he going to be able to get a period of time where he can just stay fit and actually really show his true level and. I guess at Wimbledon last year, when you saw kind of how he competed against Djokovic, I mean, you you could see the level was there already. Um, and he's shown that that previously. And it was just a case of staying fit. And when he could, I mean, the guy's just unbeatable at the moment. It doesn't seem like five love deficits in a third set tiebreak is, is stopping him. So, um, yeah, I totally agree. I think top 100 by the end of the year, probably maybe even sooner the way he's going. Mm. Um. I, I put this in my notes and I think it stands up, Calvin, but you may may rubbish it. Is there value in Jack playing this level most of the year? I mean, look, if if he start if he wins every single one, he will end up, you know, in a position to to go and play 
tour level events and, and the rest of it. But is there value in him taking a full year of challenger tennis, if you like? There's no value if he keeps winning them. Yeah. Um, if he just keeps doing what he's doing, there's no value at all. I mean, he's he's probably on that. If you're doing that, you're probably already playing to the level of somebody who's about 90 to 70 in the world, which mm. is probably where he's at. And let's not forget as well that when he's played guy, he beat Sinner last mm. year. He beat Bublik last year. He was competitive. He, he lost to Cam Norrie at Queen's, but he beat him in one of the British tournaments, the Battle of the British tournaments earlier in the year. Um, he was very competitive against Kukushkin when he had the dehydration thing in Miami last year. Mm. So it, when he comes up against those players, he's he's right there in the mix. So, yeah, I mean, I saw him, at, I, I think I meant, my mention on the pod, we practiced with him just before Christmas for a week, and you could see then he was he was already levels above what, what anyone else in the building was. Mm. Um, he will uh, probably not end up in Indian Wells, but I think he will probably end up getting a wild card in Miami if he wants one, which is, of course, as you mentioned, Calvin, uh, where he um, well, he got hit by the heat, which has happened to many players before and will continue to happen uh, to players in Miami. So I'm sure he'd like a chance to go and um, rectify those wrongs, if you like. Uh, he will then, I suppose, you know, he's up to one, four, five in the world. He will certainly be in qualies for the French Open. Um, I would think he might be seeded in qualies for the French Open. Not far off, anyway. I mean, it depends how many players actually go. I would think, Calvin. Yeah, and you see now, I, I do. Th- I think he'll be in the top one hundred by the end of the year. And like Anna said, I think it'd probably be earlier. But you see now that where things slow down, like yeah. he just won a challenger, which is a pretty good level, and he's only gone up about fifteen places, mm. and that becomes tougher now. I, I say it again that I think that the the gap between 150 and 99 is almost like double your points it, it's yeah. around about then so it's not like you just keep doing this and and you go up if you just stayed in playing challenges for the rest of the year he'd probably take him the full year to get in the top 100 mm. um whereas yeah. if you can get in some some main draws um or win some qualities matches on the tour then he'll get in there a lot quicker uh, he also has the advantage of being with IMG which tends to um make wild cards a little easier to to come by to say the least he also had the advantage of being a great-looking bloke, as I found out today. Uh, he has two IMG agents, one for tennis, one for modelling, um, which is news to me. I don't, yeah, I know, right? I, I'm getting lots of puzzled looks, but uh, that's just the truth. Uh, I've seen more topless photos of Jack Draper today than I was expecting to, put it that way. Um, as I say, he's up to 145 in the world. Is it 32 seeds in Grand Slam qualifying? Because if it is, I'm sure he'll be seeded for French Open qualities. If it's 16, then uh, less likely. But, I mean, Clay, uh, I don't know if I know anything about Jack's um, kind of pedigree on Clay. And it feels like we've got a lot of people who don't have a lot of clay court tennis under their belt coming through in British tennis, partly for obvious reasons. There's not a lot of clay court tennis here. And with the way the last two years have been, they haven't necessarily had the chance to go and do it. If you look at his game, I don't see why it can't transfer. I mean, he moves well. Got a big forehand, good backhand, good serve, lefty. For me, I don't see why there should be any kind of issue with him transitioning. I'm not totally sure either kind of what his clay court pedigree is and how much clay court tennis he has played. But for me, I'm not really sure that's that's kind of a factor. As long as he has some good prep on clay, which I'm sure he probably will, whether it's a um, NTC or, or somewhere else. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him come through qualies if he gets a kind of a decent draw or even if he doesn't. Mm. Callan, any thoughts? Um, I'm trying to think. I can't. I mean, I've known Jack 
a while and I can't, well, I've known him since he was 10, but I can't really remember him ever playing any clay court tournaments. Um, I guess in seniors, he's had a, he's had a weird start to seniors, hasn't he? Because yeah. basically his first two years we were in a pandemic. So yes. he wouldn't have played many clay court senior tournaments because kind of the tournaments that he will have played over the last two years, he's not going to have gone and played on what probably still would be his least favourite surface. It will be his he, least favourite because he's, he's good on grass. He's good he on got to the final of a 25K in Prague last year on clay and he lost to Manuel Guinard in the final. So, I mean, yeah, I, I know Manuel Guinard and that surprised me at the time because uh, Jack's <laughs> a better player than Manuel Guinard is. There you go. Maybe maybe some work to do on the clay, but then we'll get him on the grass. And um, yeah, someone said to me on Twitter, actually, you know, I posted, um, by the way, Jack Draper's played five challenges this year and he's won three of them. And someone replied saying, yeah, like he if he hadn't drawn, if he'd drawn almost anyone but Djokovic, he could have had a decent run at Wimbledon and, and you know, picked up some really big points there, which, as you say, Calvin, would have made such a difference in the way he moved up the rankings. He's also had a bit of upheaval as well. He changed his training setup, uh, trained his coach uh, in the last 12 months as well. So he's working with James Trotman at the LTA, who's doing a fantastic job. He's a, he's a really good coach, his trots, um, and a great fit for Jackie. It'd be interesting to see how long, if whether they just stay with that. I think I'd advise them to just stay with that. But there always seems to be an idea who's going to coach Jack next. But I I don't see why you'd change up what he's already doing. Mm. James Trotman, I think I'm right in saying, had part uh, part of Cam Norrie's development under him as well. Is that right? Yeah, well, Trotz would would sort of he's a he'd be a case manager of uh, one of the men's case managers. So I guess kind of like that, any of the the British players over the last five or six years who were without coach at a particular time or even with coach, they would they would do, do quite a bit with either Trotz or Mark Hilton. This is a skill you're going to have to develop, Anna, is make sure that you've spent at least a week on court with almost everyone so that when someone finally wins something, you can just say, yeah, that was me, actually. It's it's a crucial thing to do. Petch is a genius. Oh, no, I think this is going to be my new tactic. Screw actually just having like an individual player. I'm just going to go like spend a week or a day with everyone and just try and claim credit for it and be like, yeah, yeah I'm a great coach. I, honestly, I'll back you every single time. Is... I'll give you commission as well when I do because you get you're the one who gave me the idea. <laughs> let, let me make let it me... clear that let me make it clear that's not what I'm saying that Trotz did. <laughs> no, can I, yeah, can I just say for the record, uh, cer- certain really other coach. people and not not any other people who I who I've mentioned there. <laughs> certain other people do do that. Yeah. No, no comment. No comment at all. Um, let's move on before we start uh, pissing off listeners. Uh, we can piss off Alexander Zverev because I'm pretty sure he doesn't listen. Uh, and he's pissed everyone else off in the world. Uh, almost everyone would have seen this footage of him smashing his uh, racket against the umpire's chair after a doubles match, of all things, uh, you know, because he's not a doubles player. Uh, he got fined. Uh, he got kicked out of the singles tournament. He'd already lost in the doubles tournament. Uh, the real question is, should we be giving him a ban as well? Um, Anna? <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I just like, I just don't get it. Like, what is he doing? If it had been a singles match, I'd understand. But it was doubles. He doesn't, like you say, he doesn't care. And I mean, it was really aggressive. Like, he didn't just, like, wrap his racket around the net post or anything. He was, like, kind of going after the umpire a little bit. It was, like, it was close to him. He could have hurt him. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Have you I'm- ever seen a player do anything that even resembles that on court? Um... I'm trying to think if I've seen people hit the umpire. I feel I feel like there has 
been occasions where people have done that, but not like as high. He went pretty high on the chair, didn't he? Mm. If I remember correctly, it was like it was definitely foot height. Um, so for me, yeah, like that's just unacceptable, really unacceptable. Yeah. So you know, he should suffer the consequences, whether they actually ban him or not. I'm not sure if they're going to. Calvin, can you think of anyone having done? I mean, you've seen some meltdowns uh, because you usually live text them to us, but anything like that? I've been involved in a couple, to be honest. <laughs> Calvin's been the one whacking the chair. <laughs> no, I mean, there's the Mac, there's the famous McEnroe one, isn't there, where he pretty much destroys the, the display at the side of the umpire's chair. Yeah. Um, and he got banned, you know, got default and he got banned for that. He'll, he'll get banned. They have to ban him. They, there's no way they can't ban him. Um, I, I remember Nalbandian getting kicked out the Queen's final when he kicked the little hoarding in front of the baseline umpire's shin and drew blood, I think. That was kind of a... Although it was bad, that was kind of an accident, though, wasn't it? I don't think he was intending to do what he actually ended up doing. Like, Yeah, yeah, I don't know. He, he intended, intended to kick it, and then yeah, he... He intended he did... to kick it. I don't, think the, I don't think he was bothered. I don't think he was intending anything at that line judge, though. No. I think it was more that he was mad at his own play opposed to anything else, where... Zverev just going nuts. The funniest thing about that was like Zverev's partner just didn't seem asked about it at all. <laughs> like, like, I kind of got the feeling that I don't know what it was about. I assume it was about a line call or something. But I kind of got the impression that um, that Mello probably just thought it was probably the right call and he just couldn't be bothered getting in the argument. Yeah, it, it was a line call a couple of points before. I mean, it, I think it, it was a final set. Um, it was against Lloyd Glasspool, wasn't it? And yeah, um, yeah. And Helio. And it was in the final set tiebreak, you know, champions tiebreak. And yeah, there was a line. I saw the argument about the line call and it was, you know, the usual stuff and, you know, just player pointing at Mark and saying, look, it's out or in. Or, and yeah, I mean, I don't know Mello particularly, but he seems like a relatively chill that guy and he didn't seem it's that just, bothered. It was just the entitlement and childishness of it. He was just so petulant and it was mad. And he keeps doing it. It's like he's just a bit of a dickhead, isn't he? Yeah, like you can't. There's no way around it. <laughs> Just to, to kind of, I'm not going to defend Alexander Zverev, but for a little context, he had played the night before the latest ever ATP finish, which I think was about 5 a.m. local time. He went to three sets with Jensen Brooksby. I mean, it was absurd, and it was a bad piece of scheduling from the ATP. So I've no doubt that he was a bit grouchy, um, as anyone would be after a 5 a.m. finish. If Belshaw was here, he could certainly, as a man who regularly finishes after 5am, um, he would certainly uh, uh, vouch for that. Um, Zverev's PR machine. Actually, I'll tell you something, an interesting story. Uh, I met a German journalist out in Beijing when I was doing the Winter Olympics. Clang. Um, and he was chatting about how Zverev's really adopted this new PR strategy in Germany to try and really you know, be German and kind of really get the German public on side because I actually think he's, I mean, look, he's not very popular anywhere, but I think he's specifically not very popular in Germany uh, for whatever reason. I think they see him as a bit aloof, which frankly he is. Um, and they, um, you know, are worried about the domestic abuse allegation, which they rightly should be. Uh, so I think he has been trying to get the German public on side and interestingly, in the last couple of days, he has said that he's now going to play in the Davis Cup tie against Brazil, um, pretty much as a direct uh, apology 
for doing that, <laughs> which I don't know how Daniel Altmaier feels about this because he's been dropped from the squad <laughs> to let uh, to let Sasha in. But I mean, Anna, if that was a British player who'd done that, and you know, they then said, "Oh, I'll play Davis Cup." I mean, would it would it really kind of make a difference to anyone? No, not in the slightest. <laughs> You'd probably be less likely to want them, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. Like what? What when you're saying this German journalist was saying about trying to be? Was it? Did you say more German? Yeah. Like what, what's, what's he trying to like? What's he trying to do? I don't really get that. <laughs> I think. What, what does that even mean? Well, I suspect. I suspect the German market is pretty big, and there's pretty big sponsorships in Germany, and that if Zverev isn't a very popular figure on on home soil. He's probably not going to bag big money sponsorship deals, whereas they can see that money already. And just to be honest, just stop acting like an absolute Muppet. (laughs) Stop whacking a chair like it's got nothing to do with what your PR company does. But just don't act like an absolute idiot. That should be that you should do a pitch for his next PR strap. (laughs) Just like, oh, my God, just knock some sense into him. It's just, oh, it's just it's just dumb. When when you said that he's done this kind of as an apology, has he actually apologised yet for this? Has he put? Uh, he out? did. He did admit his behaviour was unacceptable. I don't know if he used the word sorry. Uh, I, I put, without seeing it, I put money on that it was around one of those. Um, I apologise if anyone was offended. <laughs> uh, um, it'd be one of those types, wouldn't it? Uh, I, just let me. I've got it um, here. He said it's difficult to put into words how much I regret. My behaviour, which is a classic non-apology line. Um, oh, for goodness sake. I had it up and then the lovely website I was using that wasn't inews.co.uk, which would usually never do this to you, uh, then just took it away from me. I privately apologised to the chair umpire because my outburst to him was wrong and unacceptable. As you know, I leave everything out in the court yesterday. I left too much. Uh, he's saying he's doing the Charlie Sheen defence of it's my passion. It's just my passion was too much. Um, what's I'm, my weakness if anything i'm too perf- i'm too much of a perfectionist yeah exactly um yeah he did not use the word sorry so uh but you know sorry sorry is the hardest word famously <laughs> all right <laughs> but he's but he's gonna play davis cup so everything's fine um yeah we'll see exactly what comes of that i mean for me i'd ban him for a i don't know a month is, is a month right i mean that for, you can't not ban him surely You'll have to be banned. I don't see how he can play Davis Cup next week. You know, he's he's opted into Davis Cup. But I, I tell you what, I wonder, this would be very clever. In rugby, when you get banned, they specify what you're banned from. So they say it's six weeks, but you're banned from these matches. And they make the ban the length. You know, if your team hasn't got a game for two weeks, they'll just make your ban longer. And I wonder whether Zverev's like, right, I'll sign up for as many tournaments as I possibly can. And then when they ban me for four tournaments, it'll be the Davis Cup tie I didn't want to play anyway. That would be genius. I would almost respect that. Um, anyway, uh, just because someone asked on Twitter, um, and I apologise for not remembering who it was, uh, about the status of the ATP investigation into Alexander Zverev and the domestic abuse allegations against him. Uh, that has been ongoing for, I think, four months now. And there is still no update. I spoke to the ATP about it um, in the last couple of days. And they had nothing to share with me. So make of that what you will. Uh, I've got any other business listed, but we might have done all the business. Have you, Calvin, you've got any other business? I knew you would. I've got some. So this has been brought to my awareness in the last couple of hours, actually. One of the more bizarre um, 
things that have happened in tennis. I don't know whether anyone else has seen it, but Bernard Tomic going for some sort of um, character change. Um, he's claim he's he's sort of he's dyed his he's bleached his hair blonde now, and he's he's sort of claiming that he's spiritual and almost like he's joined some sort of hippie commune. And on his on his Twitter on his uh, Instagram handle, he's claiming he's a vegan and uh, fascinating stuff, uh, and which I'm almost certain is complete bullshit. Um, I have not seen anything of the sort. Yeah, he has he Instagram seen the light? Post. I mean, I, I know because my, my uncle lives very close to him in Australia and he says that basically the reputation he has is only about 10% of how bad he is. He's apparently an abhorrent individual. I haven't heard great things about him, to be honest. So that doesn't yeah. actually surprise me in the slightest. I look forward to the reinvention of Bernard Tomek because if he if he can reinvent his character and become some sort of you know, man of the people, then, you know, Vladimir Putin might win Eurovision. Yeah, um, I mean, because <laughs> his, his Instagram post, if you look at it, is like some sort, like he's genuinely joined, joined some sort of commune. Okay, I'm actually, like, I'm actually going to have to check now because, like, you've made me really curious. This is yeah. super exciting. I will post Bernard Tomic's Instagram post on the Love Tennis Pod Twitter account. But in the meantime, that is really all we've got time for. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for Anna for being with us these last two weeks as well. Um, we may have to renegotiate George's contract when he gets back from Cuba because he certainly can't do every week at this rate. Do give us a, a follow. Uh, do make sure you leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and as always, try and enjoy yourselves. Podcast Network.